Hello and welcome to Minimalist Buddha Podcast, where you learn to systematically declutter your mind, your life, and your personal living space. I'm Sensei, your host, and I want to welcome you from wherever you're listening in the world. I also want to say thank you to all of my students, my clients, my followers, and supporters. Without your support, my work would not be possible. I'm excited about today's episode, and with no further ado, let's get right to it. And welcome back. Today we are talking about the phenomenon called money. And money has a rather unique way of causing a great deal of clutter in the mind. Ask yourself this question. How often do you think about money in a single day? Whatever your answer is, I'm going to suggest that you need to multiply that by two because the level of subconscious activity going on about money you may not be fully aware of. And it may be the source of a great deal of agitation. So today we're hoping to help you declutter the mind as it relates to money and your relationship with it. So I am by no means a financial advisor. I personally don't have much money to speak of, uh, though admittedly it's not something that has been a main pursuit in my life. But what I have is an understanding about the nature of money that no matter what your financial situation is, I'm sure you'll find it beneficial. So what are some of the thoughts, common thoughts, that we have about money? Do I have enough? Will I have enough? How do I get more? How do I not lose what I have? What should I invest in? How much should I invest? What are the markets doing today? This is cheap. This is expensive. These are all very common thoughts depending upon your financial situation. And how often we hold these thoughts and similar thoughts is indicative of the kind of relationship that we have with money. So, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, it produces a great deal of clutter. That is our relationship, our thoughts about money. And what are some of those types of clutter that it might produce? Inferiority or superiority? Worthy or unworthy? Attractive or unattractive? Both literally physically and or as a potential mate or partner. Successful or unsuccessful. Powerful or weak. Important or unimportant. All of these thoughts lead to disharmony in the mind 
and therefore in our day-to-day experience. So our goal today is to clean up your relationship with money so that no matter how much you have, your day-to-day and moment-to-moment mental states are more stable. Now, just for a point of clarity, this is not an indictment against money, nor is it a criticism of poor or rich people. Rather, it's an opportunity to discover how your present relationship with money can be seen from a vantage point heretofore missed. So let's jump into a few characteristics that I notice about money. First is money is inherently unstable. Again, money is inherently unstable. And if you doubt this, perhaps you should look into how its value is determined. And you don't need to be a scholar to do this. This is not about intellectual gymnastics. Just basic common sense about a phenomenon that may be causing you unnatural stress. So money's value is often a factor in determining its value is a scarcity or abundance of goods and resources, much of which you have no control over. It's highly speculative, if not, some might argue, purely speculative. It fluctuates constantly, even within the same day. So, for example, if you were to do a wire transfer or some financial uh, transaction that would require maybe another country, you'll notice that the currencies of each country fluctuate greatly within the same day. Now, of course, there are many things that account for that. But our point is not to get into disputes or debates about what the reasons are for that fluctuation, but that it fluctuates. And that it fluctuates so much that money and stability are not really partners. Long ago, many years back, I read this book by an author named Adam Smith. Adam Smith was a Scottish philosopher and economist. And he wrote a book in 1776 called Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, commonly just known as the Wealth of Nations. Now, I read the unabridged edition of that book, which was over 1,100 pages, and I can tell you that it was painful. (laughs) It was uh, a mixed bag of good information and a lot of, quite frankly, very dry information. However, I took on that challenge, if you will, willingly, 
because I wanted to educate myself about the deeper principles about economic theory. And this book, written by Adam Smith, has been a major kind of representation of the classical view of economics. And in this book, he discussed a number of things. One of them was the division of labor and its connection with prosperity. Another was human nature. And interesting, what he said about human nature is that largely, though not exclusively, humans are greedy. (laughs) And this seems to be a hallmark of Western thought. So you'll see it in Western philosophy. You'll see it in uh, Western spiritual traditions, this notion of uh, the nature or the core of the human being is greedy, is uh, sinful, is, uh, we'll just say, something other than positive. And so Adam Smith was no exception in this regard. But there was one concept that I think is relevant to this notion of the instability of money, because much of economic theory and determining value of goods and services and even the value of money itself, currency, is purely theoretical. And you'll be amazed at some of the theories that are invoked and used to describe uh, this phenomenon called money. One such theory that Adam Smith had was called the invisible hand. Sometimes it's referred to as the invisible hand of God. And basically, in Wealth of Nations, he says that merchants will naturally prefer and protect their domestic economy as a form of protection and security. So you yourself imagine yourself as a nation. And on the individual level, it's the same. Pretty much, you're going to want the most for your money, and you'll do those things that uh, secure that value. He also used this same theory in another book, which I had not read, but it's called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And I began that book and for whatever reason uh, did not finish it. But in that book, what I do recall from the portion I did read, he spoke about this invisible hand this invisible hand that's working in the market. And there, it was a reference to rich people being guided by an invisible hand that would lead them to distribute the necessities of life in such a way that had the world been set up and divided naturally amongst all of its inhabitants. So that there's something, even despite the greed of human beings, that they would somehow be moved by something else to say, hey, you know, we have a lot, but, uh, you know, we'll distribute enough so that others have at least the bare necessities. So how that's played out in history, uh, I'll let you decide for yourself. The last thing I'll say is a quick kind of digression is that if you want to understand money, Please take the time to educate yourself 
don't involve yourself in political uh, discussions about, you know, left and right and conservative and liberal and Republican and Democratic, uh, you know, bantering and sparring. But I can recommend what I did for myself many years back is that I just started reading about the major economic philosophers and theorists and what they had to say about money and economies. So it didn't matter to me whether they were conceived, uh, considered to be uh, conservative, liberal. I, I didn't care about that. I wanted to get more at the fundamental principles of political economy or what's called economics today. So I read Adam Smith, Thorsten Veblen, uh, Keynes, Marx, F.A. Hayek, Milton Friedman. All of these individuals have really impacted the nature and the understanding of money as we know it today. And if you're not so inclined to read all of that boring stuff, <laughs> then I recommend a book that's kind of uh, covers the lives of several economic philosophers. And I think you would find it very useful. The author, I believe, is Robert Heilbronner. And the book is called The Worldly Philosopher, Lives, Times, and Ideas of the Great Economic Thinkers. Uh, this book is much shorter. I would call shorter. It's, a, you know, over 300 pages, but it flows. So don't be intimidated by that. It's not like uh, reading The Wealth of Nations by any means. So educate yourself and discover for yourself whether or not this phenomenon called money is stable or unstable. I maintain that it's unstable and therefore we have our first cue as to why money quote unquote troubles us. But let's keep going. The next thing about money I'll say is that it has no real value. Now, a lot of people get really disturbed when I say that because they say, sure, it does. It has a value. I can buy this. I can buy that. And look, even when I pick up this $10 bill, look, it says $10. This is worth $10. Well, what I mean is that it has no threshold value below which it could be precluded from going below. No threshold value below which it is precluded from going. Also, the value of any currency can be and often is intentionally manipulated through policies. We hearken back to what Adam Smith said. Look, people are going to do things that are in the best interest to protect their domestic markets. And that means that I may do something intentionally to manipulate the currency of my own money or that of another nation. 
So let's kind of give you a real world example of what I mean by this, something that you can get your, your mind around. Let's just say, for example, that today a gallon of gas is $3. And then some point after today, there's a natural disaster or a pandemic or a war breaks out in a particular region. And you go back to get your gallon of gas the following week or two weeks later. And now that gallon of gas is $4. $4 for the same gas. So now that $10 that you had to spend on that gas has seemingly lost or decreased in value again due to something completely beyond your control. Now, one could obviously argue, and many will, that, well, the, the value of gas went up, and therefore the value of your money remains the same, and there are all of these kind of back-and-forth arguments that uh, people make about this. But at the end of the day, on day one, my $10 could buy me this, and on day six, and it's, it's only worth a little bit less. I can't do what I could do even six days ago with the same amount of money. So therefore I say money has no real value. Now don't mistake this as me saying that it has no purpose. It does have a purpose, but that purpose is purely transactional. Money is inherently unstable and has no real value. Now, the last thing I'll say about a characteristic of money is that ultimately it provides a false sense of security. It provides a false sense of security. And not because money is evil, or anything like that. Rather, one again has to only look at their own situation to find out whether this is true or not. Because generally speaking, people think the more money I have, the more secure I am, right? I can buy more things. If I get sick, I have the money to pay for it, uh, etc. If I want to go on a nice trip, I can do that. And so the pursuit of the accumulation of money is often based on a sense of acquiring some form of security. So I hope at some point you're starting to see that however you conceive money, there are some deeper, deeper issues at play that establish our relationship and connection with money that have nothing to do with its uh, actual quote-unquote value in terms of what's printed on the paper. But it has to do with deeper issues of security, stability, value. This is how you should start thinking about money. 
And here I mentioned that it's a false sense of security. I ask you again, look at your own situation and the thoughts that you have. Many rich people are afraid of losing their money. What kind of security is that? Sure, they might prefer still to be rich, but for those who are honest, there is something in the deep recesses of the mind that has a preference not to see that money be decreased, and certainly at least not in an amount that would affect their lifestyle. If a person is poor, they're worried about not having enough money, not having enough for even the bare necessities. And so if they had more money, they believe that that would bring some sort of security, if not at least access to the necessities of life. And if you're quote unquote middle class, boy, this is a double whammy because you're concerned about not losing your money, not becoming poor, and yet you also desire to be rich. You want more. So listen to the language that people use around money, and you'll find out where in this continuum they might fall. But I can tell you for sure that almost everyone believes that money brings about or will a type of security that actually does not presently exist. So look at this continuum and find out where do you fit in? These are just three broad categories with little nuances and points in between each. So here's the first main point I want you to get. Clutter is being caused by money only because it is inherently unstable or unstable, excuse me. It lacks a real value and provides a false sense of security. So I respectfully disagree with Adam Smith and any other person who says that the nature of the human being is greedy, selfish, brutish. No, that's not the human nature. What causes that appearance what causes that to arise is one's reliance on a phenomenon that is unstable. Money, currency, is an unstable, constantly fluctuating phenomenon. And if any person seeks mental stability, mental harmony on a foundation as shaky as 
money is, he or she will rarely, if ever, experience true peace and harmony. True mental stability. Please reflect upon this, and we'll be right back after this. All right. In this segment of the show, we are going to do a thought experiment. I am really fond of using thought experiments, and I really first started to adopt this approach to my spiritual development based upon my readings of Einstein. And I figured if he could use thought experiments to come up with profound truths and theories about the entire universe, that I also could use that exercise as a way to help myself deepen my consciousness. So when I'm working with my students and my clients, I often use an array of thought experiments that I've created to help open up an understanding so that something deeper can happen. So today's thought experiment is around money. And I have this $10 bill here. And I want you to imagine that you have $10 in your hand, or if you have access to any money at all, even a single dollar, take it out, hold it in your hand. And I want you to hold this money and imagine that each time you flick it, like so, that it increases tenfold. So I have this $10, I flick it, now it's $100. I flick it again, now I have $1,000. Wow, this is great. This is even better than having a genie's lamp. <laughs> so I want you to continue flicking that money and increasing it tenfold until you reach a point where you feel satisfied. And so for the sake of time, I'm going to imagine, and I want you to imagine that I flicked my $10 bill enough times so that now that $10 is $1 million. Now, I have this money, I'm so happy, I am thinking about all the things that I can do with it, but here's part two to the experiment, is that no matter how much money you have, you cannot spend it on anything. You got it? So you want billions of dollars. In this thought experiment, you can be richer than all the people in the world put together. Have as much money as you can possibly conceive of. But there's one condition. You cannot spend it on anything. 
Think about that. How much we assign to security and value regarding money. And yet, if I literally had all the money there was to be had, or millions or billions of dollars, but I could not spend it, not even to buy myself clothes or water, food or shelter. What value does that really have? So you want something to stabilize your mind about money that is true, that provides substantial real security? then I want you to listen to this because I can tell you that for myself, it is the single most profound thought I've ever had about money. And it is this. Money is for other people. Money is for other people. And here I don't mean at all that you shouldn't have money. No, 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 no. You're missing my point when I say money is for other people. So let me give you some examples of the truth of this. Every penny you earn or that comes your way is not yours. There's something called Taxes, sales tax, income tax, business tax, social security tax. There's something called utilities. You want water, you want electricity, you must part with that money. You want food to sustain your biology. You must part with that money. You want shelter to protect you from the cold and the heat? You must pay something called rent or lease or a mortgage or buy it outright. In any case, you must part with that money. The same is true about clothing. inheritance. You want to have a business, a thriving business with employees? Well, guess what? If you want employees, you're going to have to part with that money. If you want luxuries in life, those things up and beyond the bare necessities, to go on a nice vacation, to eat out at a nice restaurant, you must part with that money. Money is for other people. This goes beyond any sense of charity or philanthropy. I want you to take the approach to money that I advise people to take when it comes to nutrition. Stop looking at the package 
and start reading the label. If you believe that money is yours because it's in an account that you call yours, which, by the way, sits in someone else's institution, a bank, a credit union, your notions about the possession of money that is actually for you and or that it is yours is completely off the mark. And I challenge you today to challenge yourself to see if what I'm saying is not true. Money is for other people. If you can allow this to sink in, I guarantee you that much, if not all, of the clutter that is caused in your mind about money will go away like that. As much as you try to save it, what are you saving the money for? To spend it (laughs) by necessity or by choice. That list I just gave you, that's what the money is for. Because we see from our thought experiment that I could have billions of dollars. And if I could not spend it, how am I any different than a poor person? A person who has no money. Two totally different extremes. On one end, extreme poverty, no money can't afford anything. The other end, all the money that you could imagine, but you can't spend it on anything. All you can do is stockpile it. I want to leave you just with this thought. I don't think there's anything else I want to say on this matter right now. Use this thought experiment. Use everything that I've said in this episode to help declutter your mind about money. And you'll be amazed about how lighthearted you'll become, how creative you will become how money may magically seem to start just coming your way all because you have cleared up your consciousness about what money is and what it isn't until next time peace and blessings